McShane Bible study. Uh, I think I'm going to try to knock out two days today, 68 and 69. And so that's starting in Exodus 20 and 21. And of course, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments, but it's just profound. I haven't gotten past the first three verses before I felt the need to say something. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If Egypt represents the world and slavery is slavery, like we're in the flesh, we are all slaves of the ruler of this world. He is the God that brings us out of worldly ways. He's the God that brings us out of slavery to Satan and gives us freedom. That's just so powerful. It, it, and in the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. It's really all comes down to that. If we live for him, because we make God, the second one's about idols, and we make idols in our heart about all sorts of things in the world, and, or, or isms of the enemy, socialism, uh, republicanism, or, uh, you know, what capitalism, or uh, the various things. People put their philosophies above God. People put their, their, uh, the way they like to spend their free time, their, you know, their sports, their movie stars, their, um, whatever, <laughs> everything in life, just TV shows, just staring at a TV or staring at the internet all day. We make gods of all sorts of things. God says, I'm the one that brought you out of slavery. I've made you free. Now walk with me. Let me be your only God. All the amazing blessings that he promises, which are more than we can even imagine. Just come down to this. <laughs> Make me your God. Be set apart from the world with me. And let me be your only God. And I will bless you more than you can imagine. We see in verse 19 that the people said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They were terrified of God. Moses tried to encourage them, but they didn't come up the mountain. God wanted them to be a kingdom of priests. He said it. And he promised all this blessing, and they refused to come up. So the question is, in this day, will he find a people willing to come up the mountain? Is it terrifying to leave the world that we've always known? Uh, everything that we've loved in this world, to give those things up, to die to those things, and choose him and his way? Yes, it's hard to do those things, but his promises are mightier than we can imagine if we will be this people that he has always desired and that he will have. And this chapter ends with a law about altars. And he says, when you make an altar to me, don't use gold or silver. That's, that's world mammon. That's, you know, you think that's valuable in the earth. It is valuable in the earth. But that's, I, I am more valuable than these things. These things are as nothing to me. Just use plain stone and don't use a tool. Just lump the stones up on each other as a place to worship me. So the tool represents work of our own hands, saying, I'm going to do these great things for God, right? That, that, that stirs in us when we, when we dedicate our life to God. You know, Satan switches us from, um, oh, there's no such thing as God. There's no, he's not real. You don't want to follow him to, oh, you can be mighty in God. You can be powerful. Exactly like what he offered Jesus in, in the, uh, desert, the wilderness, right? 
Well, he turns to us and says, you can be mighty. You can do these things. And we think, it's God's calling me to do these great things. And we start working in our own efforts. But here we see, he says to Moses, don't use a tool. I've created the stones. Let that be enough. Just worship me. I will do the heavy lifting. Moving on to Luke in chapter 23, we see uh, Jesus is judged by the religious leaders. And he's judged eventually, sort of a couple times by Pilate, who represents Rome. So the great worldly power. Also judged by the uh, Herod, who was like king. You remember, if you go back in history, when Israel wasn't ruled by Rome, they would have kings and priests. So the Pharisees and Sadducees basically holding that priestly position, uh, particularly the Sadducees, but the Pharisees putting themselves forward as such. Uh, Herod, you know, I mean, he's uh, he's not he's a Edomite. He's not the line of David by any means, but but representing that kingly position, and then the worldly power of Pilate have all judged Jesus as guilty. They've all inspected him. However, the through the inspection, they couldn't actually find anything wrong with him, which is important as the Passover lamb, because you're supposed to inspect the Passover lamb to make sure it's perfect. So they were doing the inspection and couldn't find anything wrong with him, and yet they condemned him to death. And even if you remember, it's not in this chapter, but uh, the high priest said, I can't remember, I can't quote it exactly, but he basically said, don't you understand that it can be important for one man to die so that the rest can have life or freedom or something like that? <laughs> and so he was prophesying exactly what Jesus would do. Jesus makes a profound statement. I think it's only positive. It's only in this gospel. But there's women following and a great multitude following him as uh, Simon is helping him carry the cross to the place of his crucifixion. And Jesus turns to the women that are mourning and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? It's a profound question. He says, there are going to be much more difficult times than this. <laughs> I'm being executed, yes, but there's greater trouble coming. And of course, we saw that in Jerusalem 30 years later, 40, 40 years later. Um, but of course, we, we know all those things are just pictures of what is to come in end times, as the scripture makes clear. We juxtapose that with the, the man on the cross next to Jesus, not the one condemning and mocking Jesus, but the one who says, Jesus did nothing wrong, and, and he begs them, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So he had a simple faith. He didn't have a complex, uh, he's, by no means am I saying he was mature in his faith, but he believed in his heart and his mouth at that point, and he was saved. So that's a comfort for me for, for some loved ones. Um, again, that's not God's purpose for mankind in this world, but the man <laughs> did, was a robber and all of a sudden at the last minute he saved. And just as in these difficult times, God makes provisions for his people. In Luke 24, I just, I love the, 
story of the road to Emmaus. There's two disciples, but they're not two of the twelve. We don't know who they are. Um, but they, but Jesus shows himself to them first. Uh, after the women, I mean, he showed himself to the women first. But then he goes to two of kind of the smaller disciples. So on one hand, he did have those closest to him who were, uh, you know, who he established as his leadership. But on the same time, he you know, is reaching out to these various people who were not as close to him. I just I think that's really special. It's also kind of amazing that they couldn't recognize him. And this happens multiple times after his resurrection. It's like his his body that he now had looked very different. Uh, or perhaps changed from time to time. Because when he sees the disciples at uh, Galilee, they had already seen him before, but they didn't recognize him until they did. Um, And these guys certainly knew what Jesus looked like, but somehow they didn't recognize him. So somehow he was given a new body. um, And then he was still able, he had the power, or in their hearts, the veil could be removed so they could recognize him for who he was when they received his word. And how can I not mention Jesus asking when he shows up to all of them, have you anything here to eat? Some find that hysterical. (laughs) Ah, Van, you make me laugh. My friend Van uh, loves that verse, finds it funny that that's what he would say in that situation. And he had a a beautiful painting made and gave me a print of it hanging on our wall uh, with that (laughs) verse of Jesus. But... uh, He's, you know, he's, he's demonstrating he's coming back to real life. He's not some ghost, some, some partial life. He's actually the total reality of what we were meant to be, what Adam and Eve were called into. He has come back into that place. And he's making a way for us to come back into that place. We move to Job 38, 38 chapters in, and God shows up. And he starts to ask Job, who's been, you know, bitterly complaining about things. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. It's a great question for many of the leaders of the world today, right? We, the leaders of the world, whether it's economically, uh, politically, uh, environmentally, they believe they're masters of the universe and that they can control these things. Well, that's not what God's saying here to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? In 2 Corinthians, starting in chapter 8, Paul just encourages a giving heart. He's not demanding it like um, like a, a governmental function where this is required to live in this community. He's saying this should, this should spring out of your heart to be giving to others, to help others who are in a place where they need the help. And he, he, with verse 15, he equates it to the gathering of the manna. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So he's saying, see our provision as God, and go about our lives knowing that these are our brothers and sisters. And what would God want us to do with what he's given us? And then he talks about the people he's sending, and he, he's sending a famous preacher. <laughs> I don't know if that's Apollos or who, <laughs> but somebody had some fame for great preaching. And uh, and then he, in 9, he continues on with, um, you know, talking about uh, giving and preparing to be ready to give when the time arises. 
and he gives the he gives the principle of the point is this verse not six whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully now that's been abused by preachers but that is a principle of the lord uh, verse seven each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion for god loves a cheerful giver so it's not only important that we have a you know that that we are giving but that we're cheerful and giving in gratitude to god that we have it to give um so that's an important component if you're not in that way uh, i had a, a uh, somebody kind of attacking me a couple times on the blog years ago. And I, I, he just, I don't know if he'd been abused. He was in England. I don't know if he, what had happened in his life, but he was, his whole mission in life appeared to be attacking the concept of tithing. And, uh, and I said, look for you, don't tithe, but get over this. If you've made this an obsession in your life. And so, for him, like tithing is not so important for him. Moving on from the the idea or the burden of tithing is good. Whatever's going on with that guy, uh, he needs to move on from it. Um, here, he, Paul's talking about being a cheerful giver, it, our heart being filled with gratitude at what we have that we're able to give. So that's an important part of giving. And when we give in that state, as he just said, the Lord does bless us. I mean, Jesus, it's not, certainly not at all just about monetary things, but when Jesus says, when you're faithful a little, uh, you will be given much, he actually uses money in the example. So it is a true principle of God. It's just that too many people take it too far and uh, abuse it in various ways. So we've got to be mindful of that. And and then Paul kind of ends the chapter with, but it's not just about money. It is about Thanksgiving. It's about glorifying God. It's about, uh, you know, sharing this good news of Christ and his kingdom. He says, you know, the monetary blesses the spiritual and the spiritual is what's most important. Everything in this is a gift from God. And that's it for today. God bless you.